You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast and our latest issue of Weekend Conversations. Each week, we'll take a deeper dive into an article or interview that I shared during the week, often a Friday forward. And joining me to do this is Mick Sloan, co-producer of the Elevate Podcast. How are you, Mick? Doing well. How are you, Bob? I'm good. All right. Ready to dive into another one? Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Friday forward called Starvation and Gluttony, which was released yesterday. This is a look at why some companies fail. We've seen a lot of companies struggle and even collapse in the past two years as rising interest rates lead to restriction of capital for companies. But you argue in the post that even if a company dies because it runs out of money, there's often a deeper cause. What's that cause in your eyes? Yeah, so obviously when we see a company go bankrupt or or run out of money, it's very easy to say uh, that, you know, that was the sort of cause of death. And as I talked in the article, similarly, you might say, oh, well, someone's heart stopped beating and that was the the cause of death. Uh, but that might, you know, not tell you about all the drugs that they took or the lifestyle problems or things that, you know, came before it. Um, so the last thing is not necessarily the cause. And so I, I think that, you know, we attribute far more, and there's a lot of data that far more companies and organizations kind of die of gluttony. That is <laughs> trying to do too much than just running out of gas. Uh, and, and I think they eventually may run out of gas because they tried to do too much. And in doing that, never actually figured out a, a profitable, sustainable market. So I want to dig a bit into the root of this problem. Do you think that often companies run into this challenge because they're basically doing trial and error to see which product or service is the strongest market fit? Do you think they want to prove that they can be ubiquitous in the market when they achieve scale? Or do you think it's something else? It's a combination. Often founders, uh, you know, have a little bit of of ADD. They want to try to do things. They want to do new things. You also you get some success and you get a little arrogant. Then you could repeat that in other areas. Um, you know, this even extends into a different problem I've talked about before. You know, I, if I, I used to know entrepreneurs and they'd have a successful business, and I talked to them and they had these three spin out businesses <laughs> that they were doing, and if I check back with them in two years, all of those spin outs are dead, and now the core business is, is in trouble just because they were trying to do way too many uh, things at once. So I think there are a lot of factors. I also think like. The new at the time can seem a little bit sexy and interesting. And, and people also just think that that's a, a faster path to growth. I, the advice I always gave people was like, if you really want to be a high growth company, not every company has to be a high growth company, but like you should get to 10 million in revenue. You should be able to get 10 million in revenue doing one thing and becoming world class at that. If the market's not big enough to get to 10 million, then you're probably not going to be a growth company anyway. But when you start diversifying before that, there's a lot of problems, you know, for me. And I, again, I, I have a lot of friends around marketing services. We had a lot of competitors. I remember I always said, like, a practice area that you have a competence in might mean 10 people doing the same thing. Marketing agencies in particular, I'd see a lot of them where, you know, they had 20 services on their website and, and five employees. So I, I want to hone in a little bit on what you were talking about of, Essentially, if you want to be a growth company, you want your core offering to get to that 10 million threshold, you said. 
Do you think that they're the trap that people fall into is they say, well, this core offering doesn't have the opportunity to hit that level of growth. So I need to expand the market I can possibly hit by doing something that's kind of similar, but in a lot of ways, very different in how you actually sell it and deliver it. And are you trying to assemble sort of a, a piecemeal approach to building a revenue pie that is sustainable when really you should be questioning whether you are doing one thing well enough? Yeah, and there's look, that is the exact thing that goes on, but there's an inherent problem in that process, right? It's like throwing good money after bad. You're saying, look, I I can't make one business work. There's actually a problem of people who make one business work and never make a second business work. Saying, I can't make one business work, so maybe I can make multiple businesses work seems like a bad strategy um, because you're not locking in on the discipline. You're not figuring out prices. You're actually more likely to manifest all the other problems. As I said, a lot of people have, a, have struggled to branch out from their core business even when it's incredibly successful. So the notion of someone whose core business is unstable branching out, it's kind of it's almost kind of silly when you think about it. So we've talked a bit about the, you know, the hyper growth venture backed tech companies is often it, but there's a lot of also service companies that tried to position themselves as tech companies, even though they didn't have that same unicorn type valuation potential. How much of this do you think stems from investor pressure where entrepreneurs who want to be like the next Jeff Bezos will will basically say, we're going to do all of these types of services, which is how we are going to be a company that works with every customer. And we're going to go to the moon with that diversification of services. Do you think that that is partly trying to sell a vision rather than having a realistic perspective? Yeah, everyone's looking at the exceptions and thinking those are going to be the rule. I think you also can't do this without a lot of rope, right? And and, and people have just had a lot more rope in the last couple of years where, look, growth didn't mean growing profitably. It meant growing the top line and being able to do that. And you gave a lot of rope. Look, if you give me $10 million, I can probably go start a business line and sell $10 million worth by hiring a huge sales force. That doesn't mean the whole thing you know, won't collapse behind it. Um, so there's a difference between can you kind of get that growth and, and can you keep that growth? And I think... With that much rope, people are willing to try. I think if you don't have that much rope, if cash is a precious resource, if capital and liquidity are precious resources, you're much more careful about your decisions and how you allocate capital and what you try. And I, I say all this saying that I think organizations have to grow or or they end up stagnating or, or kind of dying. Sure, there are some businesses that can go on at the same thing. But generally, if you have bright people uh, and they want to learn and grow and take on new roles and and everything is the same and nothing changes and there are no opportunities, then they'll get frustrated. So there's something between a no growth rate, you know, and a and a hyper growth rate of, you know, how do we grow 10% a year consistently? Because I just think it creates opportunity and otherwise. If you're not growing at all, then you are probably slowly dying, whether you realize it or not. Yeah, well, I think that there is that sustainable middle between the no growth and the hyper growth, as you were just saying. And that is the type of thing. Companies, I think, really can get into trouble when they get into a brain drain type of situation where people start to look around. Talented people aren't seeing the opportunities to advance. And so they might start to look elsewhere to get on a company with a slightly different growth trajectory where there's more advancement opportunities available. Yeah, and... and 
And look, we talked about this in a Friday forward, I think before we started weekend conversations, um, sort of about pricing. Um, but a, a lot of the pricing, launch them with pricing that's that's not going to work right in the long run. It works to get market share, but but if you're not willing to charge what the client's willing to to pay in the long run, that makes it viable to offer the service. Again, that just becomes another kind of chink in your armor. And it, it, going back to this concept of you, you really want your core. I mean, you want to have your core business <laughs> as strong as possible before launching these adjacents. And and ideally, it would be pull, not push. And sometimes that's a trap, too. But the client saying, hey, we love you for this. Can you offer that? Or you sell us this product. We'd like to buy you know that product from you. And and you know that's where some of the good ideas come from. Where you're not you're not pushing it to the market, but you know the company sells razor blades, and and the customers are saying, you know, do you sell shaving cream? Because we like to just buy it from you, you know, at the same time. Yeah, and so I guess when you say pull versus push, what what you're saying is that it's what the market is telling you that it wants, rather than trying to read the market's mind or trying to push something that they might not necessarily want, right? Yeah, and this is harder in products, but this happens in client service because you talk to your clients and they say, can you do this for us or can you help us with this or do you offer you know, this? Your clients talk to you more directly. You know, That's the type of thing you'd want to take to a board. Or, well, we keep getting asked about X and it seems like something that you know, we could do and that our, our, your, that way you've solved the is there demand problem. <laughs> um, then the question of, of supply and how you deliver it becomes a risk. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. 
So do you think, and maybe this would be even more valuable on the product side because they're not necessarily in constant contact with their customers. Do you think that this is the type of thing where companies can benefit from being proactive and going to their customer base and saying, what are some things that you are looking for from the market that you would love a company like us to provide for you? Do you think that that type of detailed inquiry can be helpful? Yeah, I think serving your customers, doing focus groups, finding out what they like, understanding what what they need and how you could, you know, provide that to them, I think is is pretty interesting and I think focus groups are 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 a great tool of that and a lot of good companies are always doing that. They're they're doing focus groups with current customers or prospective customers and they're trying to understand again what are their what are their current future needs that they might be able to meet. So, I want to shift a little bit from what the problem is and that's Companies that just try and expand too quickly, they try to be everything to everyone and they end up being nothing to no one. And I want to get a little bit more into the depth and to the root of the problem and why it is a problem. And so a really good example is a company's focus and of leadership of a company's focus. And as you talk about in the Friday Forward, Steve Jobs at Apple is a really pertinent example where Steve Jobs came back to the company after some time away. He executed what was called the Great Apple Culling in 1997 when he slashed the company's products from, and I couldn't believe this when I read it, 350 to 10. And of course, a year later, in 1998, the iMac launched and it changed the course of history. So someone might read that lesson and say, well, obviously, we need to slash as many products out as we can. But what do you think is the criteria that should be used for a multi-product line, multi-service line business to say, what is our superpower that we deliver at a high level? The way that Apple could deliver personal computers at the highest level. Yeah, and like the original Apple was known, you know, for its Mac and 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 some of the core products, and then I think they just started getting into all these other areas, and their products weren't that. Windows had sort of caught up, and they weren't that leading anymore so i think you know if you're the brand like you're thinking about what again what do people want to buy what do they want what do we do better than anyone else what's our core competency and where are their competitive differentiators like why are it's kind of like the why now why us um you know rubric I, i think in terms of of thinking of that you know one of the things that we're seeing surprisingly i hear from other leaders is that as they've you know there's been a lot of sort of cutbacks of staffing and projects in the last couple of years as people, you know, were so staffed up for growth and and then the growth wasn't there and they pulled back. They're actually surprised. There were some things that they did to just cut costs and they were surprised that when they removed the, whatever that was, that other parts of the organization started growing faster and it removed bureaucracy and it just, they didn't realize and similar mistake that we made years ago, all the associated costs, the cost of bloatedness, bureaucracy, extra training, like it it was sort of this like tax in all of these other areas of the organization um, that they didn't realize. So, you know, if you have a product that that is not marking leading, it doesn't have high competitive differentiation, the economics aren't really good, that's not probably where you want to bet on yourself. And what's interesting is that once they nailed that iMac, right, then they took the cash and they took the stuff that was coming in and then they said, okay, well, what's next? So people have this iMac, their music, music can be part of their computers and they launched the iTunes and the iPod. Um, and then 
they started building a whole market out of that. But they did that from a position of health and strength, not from weakness. If they had tried to probably redo the iMac lines and that at the same time, they might have failed at both. And then, of course, a couple of years later, it was like, oh, hey, people want this portable music player and they like this Newton thing and they have a phone. Like, we seem pretty positioned within our ecosystem to make this all one. And, and then the rest is history there. Yeah. And what, what I think is so interesting, I think that the Apple example is an interesting one because to a certain degree, the focus and the pivot back to laser focus on personal computers it was kind of a vision and a almost like an ideological decision driven by Steve Jobs and by his team. Because obviously, the iMac was in a lot of ways an evolution of the Macintosh that launched in the 80s, which was not nearly as successful as the iMac. But it was, it was interesting to me that Jobs never gave up on that idea for what that type of personal computer could be. And it's almost as if he recommitted to that vision and laser focused on that. Right. So how do I make the personal, we're good at personal computers. How do we make it better? Right. And they added the color and the fun and the one piece. And um, yeah, it, it just shows you when you get everyone's energy, it's kind of the prism or laser Friday forward, right? If you're dispersing the energy around your organization or you get everyone focused on one or two things, I, I think we know which is likely to have the better outcome. Yeah, and, and sometimes there are a lot of cases where that is an example of where there was such a clear vision for what the product could be, and there was such a dedication of a large number of high-level, talented people at it, that eventually they got to a point where the market caught up to it, and they saw something that they wanted out of it. it it's interesting, though, because I think companies, in terms of finding what their core offering should be, Sometimes they have something like that where they have this vision and they commit to it super firmly. But in some cases, I think of the company Slack, which famously started as a gaming company. And they realized that they had a really effective chat service as part of that gaming company. Solving their biggest problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I guess... How, where do you kind of land on the vision versus the pivot? And when, when should you stick to that vision and say, this is what our company's roots are, we need to double down on this? And when should you look and say, well, we started as this, but this thing that was kind of an ancillary part of this company, yeah. that's going gangbusters, maybe we should go all in behind that. Yeah, this is tricky. I, as I always say, like, look, there and and... The guys from Basecamp stole this originally, but you know, you see LeBron James and Michael Jordan and all this stuff, and you think you should quit school and go try to make the NBA. And the reality is, for ninety nine percent of the people, they should stay in school because they're not going to be, you know, in the NBA. And that's no different for Facebooks and Amazons, where they got to lose money for a decade and the market tolerated it, and everyone else ran out of money, losing money. So we hear these stories, the slacks, the sort of great pivot, and they happen. But I would argue like a, the Slack's kind of pivot, that's like a historic pivot. And, and their, their, their base business was dead and they had actually built something really useful and people valued it. And other, they went and say, hey, does other people value? They, they, you know, and so they, again, they had that sort of market valuation. But when, when they went in on that, interestingly, right, that was sort of a, hey, we, we made a mistake and we're just, or just almost an accident byproduct of, you know, kind of like they were, testing Viagra for heart stuff. You know, there was this clever side effect um, that, that it had. I don't know that you can replicate that. But it is interesting that, you know, Slack 
really didn't diversify. They went after this core thing. They captured this kind of corporate communications thing. They stayed on it and then they sold it. But they did not diversify that product. It, it is fundamentally the same product that was four or five years ago. And they went and dominated and created a market for it. Yeah. So I guess it is pretty good advice to entrepreneurs that you shouldn't count on catching lightning in a bottle. <laughs> yeah. I always say, remember the the famous uh, Dollar Shave Club ad? I mean, even they couldn't recreate it. So you, know, you hear about the pivot. You see a lot of... I mean, look, if something is not working, most people aren't going to give it back, the money back. So you might as well try something different or just at least those people know when the core idea is not working. Again, I just think that you have to be careful on that. Maybe the core idea is working, but you're diverse by diversifying. You're not again, back to the iMac example. It's not like people didn't know how to make computers, but they were like, look, if we just focus on what is that people want, that's new and different in a personal computer. If all of those people were focused on 50 different products, I don't think they would have had that innovation. And so I think maybe a lot of companies are taking their focus off of how do you how do you make this? How do you make this the best product to be? Find the best product market fit, uh, and not not start diversifying, you know, into other areas. So I, I just thought of something. We were actually talking to someone earlier today in the context of talking about authors writing books, and if you have a smash hit book, it can be difficult <laughs> yeah. to follow it up. And the person we were talking to said, it's sort of like how in music you have your whole life to write your first album, and you don't have maybe even two or three years to write your second one. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. 
shopify.com slash elevate. I was thinking about that in this context because a lot of the companies that you're talking about who are trying to hit that $10 million threshold and are proving themselves as a growth company and looking to expand. When you listen to a show like How I Built This with Guy Raz, he has this real theory that all of the most successful entrepreneurs, they weren't trying to get rich. They weren't trying to build gigantic companies. They were trying to solve a problem that they were really passionate about. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you think about the possibility that part of the reason that some of these companies struggle to expand is that same fire, that passion for solving that one originating problem. It's hard to channel that same energy and passion into a bunch of related services that come off of that original solve. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's true. And I guess it's a question of whether the vision of the problem statement expands enough to include these new solutions or whether they fundamentally feel different. And maybe that's a good litmus test of whether you should, you know, get into it or not. So again, let's say a, a drug company, you know, has a, a mission to, to cure cancer by 2030. Well, you, you'd probably think that they're going to go about that a few different ways, right? They might have their kind of anchor drug, but then other things that could help them meet that mission. But that's very different than saying, you know what, to grow revenues, like let's get into diabetes and let's get into like acne stuff. And that starts to take them totally off course. You can rally everyone around all of those things that have that sort of unifying theme. And then I, when you when you talk to companies Again, sometimes they have a unifying theme that you kind of missed that was behind all their products that kind of keeps them going. And whether it's to give people back their time or whether it's to, I don't know, create new opportunities and otherwise, that, I think that's when you can make multiple things work well under the same roof, when they're all kind of serving that same purpose and objective. Yeah, and I think that also, to the point you were making earlier, it is to a certain degree a question of what type of upfront costs and investments are needed to expand into a new product or service. And a really good example is you might have a professional services organization that has some sort of proprietary technology that they use to deliver the service that they deliver. But that doesn't mean necessarily that that client, that company, I mean, should make a pivot into being, say, a software as a service company. Because that would require software engineers and designers and a bunch of upfront infrastructure investments in people and in technology infrastructure that can get really burdensome really fast. And you kind of need to know it's a hit. Yeah, I mean, I, I can give you a, a, a littered road of firms I've seen try to do that <laughs> um, and, and say suddenly, oh, software, software is attractive. The valuations are more attractive. Let's be a software company. But software companies are usually founded by engineers, not, you know, marketing people or uh, people who start an agency or, or service people. Again, they have a different capital structure. They have different valuations. They have different ways of selling. They have different ways of servicing. So I, I really can't even count on one hand the amount of times that, that I've seen that be successful. Of course, again, people have that pivot, but it's really because they're, they're kind of all in on that new direction and maybe they realized, oh, I wanted to start a software firm, not not a services firm. So, yeah, again, I, I haven't seen that work. And I think we, this will be a future Friday forward, but I do think we give too much credence a lot of times to these extraordinary exceptions. You know, thinking that, you know, what happened in the 1% uh, versus the 99%. And my guess is we can learn more. It's great if we're the 1%, but you can learn more from from the 99%, you know, sometimes. 
Yeah, well, and I think it's particularly, you have to believe that you are going to get an exceptional outcome when you start a business because making it is so difficult, obviously. And so there's a lot of people, I think, who get into the entrepreneurial realm. I'm sure you've met a lot of people like this who they always bet on themselves being the exception, even though the exceptional group gets smaller and smaller as you get to 10 million in revenue. 100 billion in revenue, yeah. 500 billion in revenue. And yeah, it's to, to your point, a lot of people expect, well, it worked for this company, you know, Slack for example, as you talked about, they caught lightning in a bottle, they got this miracle spin-off of their product and they became a household name. But you can't really count on that. Yeah, I think this is the whole notion of survivorship bias because people will tell you the Slack story, you'll hear about the Slack story, you'll read it in a case study, And you will not read about the thousand other disastrous pivots that did not work out that almost had exact identical characteristics. Yeah, and and to your point, there's probably a lot of examples of companies that were really effective at their core offering. And maybe they could have built a, not necessarily a billion-dollar company valuation with that core offering, but a healthy, profitable business with that core offering. But they got out over their skis and they tried to do too much and it led to a collapse. And and there's the cause of death. Once you run out of money, you run out of money. So back to Apple's case, it it is better to, you know, get your core business humming and producing significant amount of cash flow. And then, you know, having an R&D investment where you're constantly taking 10 or 20 percent of that money and investing it and trying new ideas that that you can afford to lose. Right. That's not going to put you into into bankruptcy. So, obviously, I I would imagine plenty of entrepreneurs are listening to this right now and quite possibly entrepreneurs who are contemplating this type of expansion. They're in the early stages of making this expansion right now. And one of the things you talk about in the post and that you mentioned earlier was the hidden costs associated with those types of expansion and the unforeseen costs. What are some of those costs and what's a good way to think about those, to look for those, to make sure that they are not out of control. Yeah. So, and it's not just entrepreneurs. I think the same dynamic is, is company leaders and divisions and organizations who are kind of making these same decisions of resources. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised, particularly on the sales and marketing and hiring side, you know, what the tax was in terms of, does this thing require, getting new salespeople, training them on entirely, you know, new things? Does it require totally new things from the marketing department that we don't have? I mean, then asking the the hiring department to go out and hire and, and find different people and different specialists than we already have. So just an example in hiring, you know, we dug into it, you know, when we started expanding into different areas early, the, it showed up in casting our net. So when we were hiring affiliate account managers, right, we could cast nets for that. And we cast a net and we'd get eight and we could then maybe hire four of them, right? When we needed an SEO specialist or PPC specialist or a social media specialist, now those are like three job searches with the same amount of work setting a net for which we have to throw back, you know, most of the fish. Versus our other net where we would have much more use for any of the fish. So I, it really, when I started digging into all of those things and started relieving those people from having to work on those other things and putting that effort back in the core business, did I notice kind of what that cost was? So I think, you know, we talk about in the article, I mean, think about it, this 
it sounds like common sense, but common sense isn't so common. If I'm launching a new product or service and it requires kind of targeting a new buyer, it requires a big financial risk, it requires kind of new and different things from sales and marketing and hiring and delivering and engineering, like it better be a really big, you know, market for that. If I decide to launch something that I know my clients are asking for, that my sales team can sell, my my marketing team can market, that sure, there'll be some changes, but most of my delivery people can deliver. And it's not a huge bet the house kind of financial risk. Well, obviously, that sounds like something that's has a much better profile of of being um, successful, and it feels like more of an extension. The other one feels like almost making another startup bet within even a potentially a startup business um, versus you know making an extension on something that's already working. Yeah, exactly, and I, I think that that's a really good point about. Do you have the people who can sell, who can deliver, who can market something already? Because obviously, there in a lot of lines of services and in products, there are things that are kind of harmonious, if not in unison with what you already deliver, that you probably have the talent, or at least you can hire more of the similar talent you already have to deliver that. Yeah, we we a lot of times when clients would ask us to... Uh, if you're a client listening and you know excited and you heard this, you know, then close your ears. But when clients would ask us to take on something new and out of scope, a lot of times repositioning it back to them in terms of the trade-off would change their mind. So let's just say we have a program and it's targeting five core markets, and those are sort of established, and they have a goal to get to 10 million. And those are those markets are doing, you know, two each. And then they say, hey, we really want to go after these new markets. And then you say, okay, well, but let's reframe this. So which of the current markets do you want to give up on? Um, because we can't just add, right? We got to have someone go working on the proven market to the new market. And then are you okay if we don't meet the revenue goal? Because again, if you take a existing market that's producing a lot of revenue and you switch the, the salesperson or the delivery person to a new market is inherently going to be less. So when you start framing it like, oh, there's risk to this. It may not work. I need to take people off the thing that's working to put them on something that may not work. Then they kind of be like, oh, you know what? Maybe we don't want to do that. And then the other answer would be like, do you want us to put more people on the program or charge more or whatever? Just to make it really clear that there is a, a trade-off and a risk. And frankly, we don't want to get the people distracted because – the assumption by the ask is we could just do it all. And that's not what actually would happen. We would have to shift resources or stop doing something or move someone around. It's not like everyone just has unlimited capacity to take on more. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it sounds like in the piece you talked about encountering this challenge of overexpanding and then needing to get back to the core offering. And this, I believe, was eight, nine years ago, correct? Yeah, we were super excited that the new offering was growing, but the rate that it was growing and sort of the slowdown in the core offering, you know, until the board pointed out like, okay, great. So this thing went from 500 to a million, awesome, but your core business is stuck at seven, right? And so it's not really moving the needle. You know, if that same amount of resources would take the core business from seven to 10, why are you doing this? Was that conversation the tipping point for you when you realized maybe we need to refocus our approach? 
Yeah, I think it came out of, again, I think have have yes and no people, you know, who pushed you. I think it came out of those discussions and looking at that we were kind of enamored that the new thing was growing, but we kind of were missing that the the, <laughs> the main thing was slowing, uh, probably directly as a result of that growth and, and siphoning off resources. That's a pretty significant decision, I would think. And there's probably not obvious certainty of what the right course of action is. Did you wrestle with that decision? How did you get to the point where you felt like the right thing to do was to go back to the core offering? Yeah, it, w- it was It was hard. No one likes to be wrong. No one likes to brag about their new shiny thing and then and then sort of pull back on it. But eventually it became clear that, well, this is the other thing. Okay, so let I like to play it out. So let's play it out. So let's assume that we are successful at it. What we ultimately realized was, and if we're successful at this and we start to actually, our clients kind of were asking for it and there was a lot of, there was something. But if we were successful at it and we really wanted to grow, well, then we were going to like run into these big players who were already formidable in this space. So we were, we were able to win a smaller client who wanted a bunch of stuff, but we could beat anyone in the world at our core business offering. We could not beat anyone in the world for just that offering. And we would probably lose when we came up against these competitors. So we kind of looked at it and we were like, okay, it's costing us and here's how it's going to play out. And then we just decided to pivot. I mean, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've tried a lot of things that haven't worked, but we usually learn something from it. I mean, much like Amazon had the disaster phone, but then they used that learning to launch the Fire TV and the Fire Sticks and all that stuff. You know, we have a, a current thing that we're doing that's working really well that's based on the learnings of five failures of <laughs> of trying to do something similar in the past. Yeah, I, I think that, that I want to double tap on something that you talked about, which is playing out the scenario and thinking it through and using the decision-making profile of our core affiliate offering. If we grow this, we can truly be the best in the world at. But these other things, we have to go against these competitors who are bigger, maybe better at it than we are. And I think that actually a really good analogy for this is what's been happening with a lot of companies entering streaming, where these incredible content development companies, studios like Disney, like Warner Brothers Discovery, and they get into streaming. And I think that if you had asked that same question of those people, when you get to the dominant position and you really grow this thing, where does that turn out? And the answer for all of those questions was in some sort of corporate flame war with Netflix. And yeah, or, or, the, or, or part of that answer on the consumer side, if you said, hey, look, if we, do we really think a consumer is going to buy 10 different $10 a month streaming things after we've just convinced them that this is a cheaper way. And I think you're seeing it was so fast and it was so, you know, came on so quick. And then you're seeing the saturation now. And it's, you know, these were the best teams to work for, you know, and in, in, in these companies years ago. And now these are, no one wants to be in these departments now. I mean, it's, it's tough sledding. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting situation where obviously, Disney, for example, Warner Brothers Discovery, they had every reason to be confident in their ability to do extremely well in the streaming game. They had these massive catalogs of content that they could put on their services, all of that stuff. But I do find it interesting that after all of that, the dust is clearing a bit and Netflix is still the dominant player. They had a a strong year last year. They smashed their subscriber numbers for Q4. There's going to be a point where if all of these players get to a certain 
size, people aren't going to spend $10 a month on 15 streaming services. There's going to be winners and losers. And looking seriously at, do we want to bet on being the exception or do we want to bet on being one of the dropped ones? Yeah, and look, what, why did Netflix, you know, if you looked at Netflix growth during that, it probably was 10, 15% a year, 18%. If you looked at Disney and some of the other ones, it was probably 100, 120, 150. And why was it 150? Because they went out to the world and they said, we'll pay $500 for a free trial. And they spent tons of money and got, oh, we look, we got millions of subscribers. Well, they're not paying. They're on six-month free trials. You induced a partner into a lot of money to get them to sign up for you. And so whenever you had that sort of juice in there, it, it, it unwinds quickly. And so I think, you know, Netflix just did the 20 mile March to what we're talking about. They're like they're a growth company, but you know, they didn't decide that year to just go nuts and start unprofitably paying for customers and, and bringing them in. And, and most of those services were just throwing money hand over fist, you know, versus, Disney had great content, right? If they had just let it grow in 20% or 20, they probably could have cut their marketing budget 90% and people would have gone to Disney streaming. But I don't know, they signed up, whatever, like 100 million customers in like a, a year. I, you know, and then you're not making money. So I don't know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you improve upon that situation. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough market. And uh, I'm curious to see what happens this year. I mean, I think that there's talk about potential consolidation, streaming, obviously. Bundling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's been looming for a, a long time. Good old fashioned I, cable bundle coming your way. Yeah, exactly. It'll be back before we know it, just like '90s fashion. So I I want to ask because you you talked about sort of the advice that you've given to people who are in this type of spot is, you know, get to that 10 million a year level with your core offering before you think about expanding. Yeah, my, my, and, and the reason is that markets are all different sizes, but mm -hmm. I it's hard to declare your world class in something below that, right? And someone told me that they were world class years ago, the five hundred thousand dollar revenue business or whatever it was. It's like that's not you're not really world class at that point. Small city class. <laughs> yeah, I guess my question is: Let's say you break through, you you've proven yourself that you have that dominant position and that strong brand reputation for that area. How do you know if it's the right type time to expand as opposed to just focusing on staying laser focused on your core product or service and sort of taking the the base camp route where they said this is our thing we're not going to try to be everyone's company but we are going to be laser yeah. focused on what our people care about how do you know if it's the right time it's a million dollar answer if i knew that i i probably wouldn't need to do this podcast um but it's also a function of your goals, right? And what you've promised and the growth you've promised. So sometimes people do it because their growth is stagnating and they promise sort of a certain level. I think some people do it because they feel like the, the market opportunity is is there. But I think, you know, it's probably more you feel that there's opportunity, you're not stretched, you have the resources, your your business, your core business is in in that sort of cash cow phase. You know, and, and what you might say is the core business is actually you know, it's generating significant cash flow, but you might feel that the opportunities are are sort of limited for growth or sort of tapped out. But at least, and this is what Netflix did, right? They didn't, they actually didn't cut off that DVD mailing business, I think, ever. I think they just slowly let it die. It just was super cash flow positive. And they were like, we need to do streaming because streaming is the future. And they executed that pivot. But but you couldn't do that if you had a money losing DVD operation. They had a cash flow positive DVD operation. So 
you know, the classic BCBG matrix of it's a slow grower, but high cash. So I, I think that's the time when you, when you get a sense that something is now in that kind of, can't remember, it's not the star, but which bucket it is where, you know, it's not going to be the growth engine anymore, but it certainly is profitable. Well, that gives you an R and D budget to sort of make some educated guesses with. And sometimes the right way to do that is through acquisition, right? Is to say, look, we have the same custom, we sell TVs and, date myself tvs and vcrs to the same customer uh so if we merge you know we can sell both to the same customer it'll be a lot more efficient we don't need as much overhead or otherwise so that that is where m&a is often a good option because you identify the problem you identify the opportunity you identify what the customers want and the product but rather than the execution risk of of building it from scratch you find someone that has it and you plug it into your ecosystem yeah, and it, it's a really good point of the idea of having this strong cash flow, cash cow facet of your offering creates the latitude needed to invest in something that is not going to be as profitable at first, but is has the growth potential. And you know, that's you see this with Amazon and Apple. They have the capacity to make these types of bets and try all kinds of new things because they know. You know, Amazon could say we're always going to have Prime and we're yeah. always going to have AWS, and it, it's that creates a lot of latitude. It's it's very true. Yeah, and and Jeff Bezos has a very simple ethos. He's sort of from Morris Hazel's latest book. What is not going to change? And so, what's not going to change is that people want things uh, faster and cheaper. And that is sort of the guiding star when you think about the drones and like that. It all comes down to two things: how do we get it to them faster? They're never going to not want it faster and cheaper. Yeah, it's it's so true. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about is how this applies in individual contexts too, because I always imagine individual people, especially leaders, they're at their best when they're able to be selective about the commitments they make or the priorities that they have, and they call things out that are not necessarily serving them. How do you personally keep that level of focus? I, I just follow the rule. And look, I was bad at this for a long time. I had a million priorities. But there's there's a lot of math and science and mystique around the number three. Three priorities, three quarterly, three annual, somehow three jams. You know, When you have more samples than that, there's a study when you give people more samples, they buy less because they're, they're overwhelmed. And so I think trying to keep the things that I'm involved with down to a narrow set of priorities that everyone's focused on. If you have 10 quarterly priorities, probably the organization will get two of them done and they might be the wrong ones. You know, when you have three done and everyone's focused on it, even if you get two out of the three, they should be the most important thing for the organization. So over the years, and we talked about this in the planning and the annual planning and the goals, like I have just tried to pare it down into the core essential things. And I, I think any leader out there or business leader or setting your, you know, the team, the organization, whether it's a quarter or annual, like try to get it into three. Because if you go three for three on the most important things, you're probably going to be better off. Yeah, very, very well said. And so the quote of the week relates really directly to that. It is from true to the Apple example that we talked about, Steve Jobs. Deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do. And so I think it's probably clear, but what resonates with you about this quote? Yeah, you know, inaction feels like not doing something sometimes, but but that is a choice. And that is and sometimes the things that we don't do are the best 
decisions or the things that we call out of the way or the thing that we cut out so that the energy and effort goes to the most in, important thing. So I, I think I think Steve said that uh, about as well as I've I've heard it said. And, and and I think sometimes again the hardest decision is not to do something. Sometimes that's not true, but not to do something rather than to do it. It's often hard, tougher to say no than it is to say yes. Yeah, tougher to do, but more important, like so many things in life. All right, that wraps up this week's weekend conversations. If you want to check out the post that Mick and I just discussed, go to robertglazer.substack.com and look for the post titled Starvation and Gluttony. Stay tuned for future editions of Weekend Conversations. That'll be in your feed every Saturday morning. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, follow or subscribe to the Elevate podcast today on your favorite podcast app so you get all the new episodes. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.